The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, quit bobbing for glazed donuts. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 388 with guest Bob Martin, recorded live Monday, October 20th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who, when it comes to the election, can't decide between Ben or Jerry, Carl Franklin. Hey, hey, kids, welcome to Jell-O Pudding Hour. This is Bill Cosby. No, I'm just kidding. It's Carl and Richard, and we're here for .NET Rocks. <laughs> what was that? Uh, just in that kind of a mood. I love Bill Cosby, man. He was my total hero. Oh, I'm with you. Yeah, one of the best stand-up comedians we ever had. Said it all so clean. It was all about the characters, too, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. Well, we're both huge fans. We keep quoting Bill Cosby back and forth to each other. That's right. I call Richard, and I go, hey, man. What do you want to hit me in the face with a slush ball for, man? <laughs> yeah, that's the way my, I usually have to answer my phone. It's disturbing, really. It is pretty disturbing, actually. So uh, let's get right into Better Know Framework. All right, man, what do you got? Kids today don't want jello pudding. No. When they get home from school, they want a nice cold beer. See? <laughs> Nothing says after-school snacks like a Budweiser. See? All right. Uh, today we're going to talk about the string comparer class. Oh. And I know you can just say if string one equals string two and all that's fine. But, you know, strings are kind of interesting because they're based on text. And, of course, if you're doing any kind of localization, text is kind of an amorphous and uh, thing that needs some special care. Yeah. So string compare is a base class for different uh, types of comparers. There is one for in the invariant culture, the invariant culture ignoring case, the current culture, and an ordinal in both ignoring case. So basically, ba you can create new string comparers from these types, and then they will apply different uh, rules to whether or not these two strings are, in fact, alike. Know it, love it, string comparer. It is your friend. Richard, do you have an email? Yes, sir, I do. It's a quick one, and it says, Hey, Carl and Richard, do you still announce code camps on .NET Rocks? Uh, no. We gave that up for Lent. We don't do that. If so, the Christchurch New Zealand .NET user group is holding a one-day code camp on Saturday, November 1st. Sorry, we can't announce that. Yeah, we don't announce that. We have lots of great speakers lined up, lots of swag, heaps of software to give away, lunch and refreshments provided, and it's all free... You can find the, the details at www.codecamp.net.nz. Sounds like a lot of fun. It's a shame we couldn't announce it. Yeah. Many thanks if you get a chance to announce this. Regards, longtime DNR fan, Andy Scrazy. Yeah, Andy, sorry we can't announce Code Camps. Sorry. 
That's a shame. Yeah, it's, it is a shame, really. If I if I could make another announcement, the other announcement is next week is PDC. PDC coming PDC right up next week. We're leaving in a couple days. And if you have, if you're a Canadian, you haven't been to Canucks at PDC.com, you've missed all the silliness. So Canucks at PDC.com for my friend John Bristow and uh, Guy Beret and all those nuts from Canada. We're all coming to PDC and we're going crazy. We're bringing hockey jerseys. You Canadians need your own URLs for everything, don't you? <laughs> what is up with that? You have to have your own URLs. Well, yeah, every country does, man. You're no fun. Just go <laughs> along with it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Our guest today is Robert C. Martin, otherwise known as Uncle Bob. Bob has been a software professional since 1970 and is founder and president of Object Mentor Incorporated in Gurney, Illinois. Object Mentor is an international firm of highly experienced software developers and managers who specialize in helping companies get their projects done. Object Mentor offers process improvement consulting object-oriented software design consulting, training, and skill development services to major corporations worldwide. Mr. Martin's published dozens of articles in various trade journals and is a regular speaker at international conferences and trade shows. He has authored and edited many books, including Designing Object-Oriented C++ Applications Using the Booch Method, Patterns, Languages of Program Design 3, More C++ Gems, Extreme Programming and Practice, Agile Software Development Principles, Patterns and Practices, UML for Java Programmers, and Clean Code. A leader in the industry of software development, Mr. Martin served three years as the editor-in-chief of the C++ Report, and he served as the first chairman of the Agile Alliance. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Should we call you Uncle Bob? Uh, Yes, Uncle Bob is fine. Thank you. All right. (laughs) Or just Bob, you know. Okay, Bob's good. Sure. So you're all about best practices, it sounds like, from the books that you've written? I am, uh, on the technical side. I'm, I, I like to write code, I like uh, programming, and I like to find ways to do it very well. Well, that sounds great. So C++, your main language still, or are you all over the place? I, I see that you do Java, UML, C Sharp, obviously, .NET. I, I am all over the place. Um, I think at the moment I'm doing a little more Java than anything else, uh, but I do C Sharp, I do Ruby. Uh, I recently picked up the uh, uh, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs textbook and, and acquainted myself with Lisp, so I've been doing a little bit of that. Uh, JavaScript is the next language I'm going to immerse myself in. Uh, probably after that, um, Erlang, Haskell, maybe Scala. Uh, there's uh, an old rule which I think the pragmatic programmers invented, which is uh, learn a new programming language every year. Good advice, so I figure I'll take them up on it. I was a, I'm a huge fan of your book, Clean Code, uh, and you and you open it so well when you say the total cost of owning a mess, which is really <laughs> to me it's, with development, it's always been uh, every program has ugliness. Do you know where yours is? The the uh, Obviously, this is an issue that's very near to my heart um, because I, I consult a lot with many companies and many teams. And what I see out there in general is uh, a terrible mess. In most instances, the code I look at uh, looks like it has been coded in a rush. Uh, it's been hacked several different ways. Uh, several different people have had their fingers in it and torn it this way and that way. And it's just gotten out of control. And the problem with that is, is that once the, once the code turns into a mess, there's almost no way to make progress in it. Everything you do drags and slows down. Uh, and this is ironic, because the reason we're slowing down, the reason we have this huge impediment, is because we've been trying to go fast. Now, the lesson to be learned there is, is that the only way to go fast is not to make a mess in the first place. The only way to go fast is to go well. So you might have to slow down a little to go fast. Well, it's the old maxim, right? Slow and steady wins the race. Um, and it's not slow. I mean, no one goes slow when they're going well. It's just that you're not rushing ahead at breakneck speed 
expecting the hammer to fall on you if you don't finish that next line of code in the, in uh, 30 milliseconds. Uh, if you take a little time and, and are deliberate about what you do and make sure you don't leave a mess behind you, uh, you will go fast today, and the people behind you and yourself, of course, will go fast tomorrow. Do you think there's too, there's such a thing as too many layers of indirection? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly too many layers of indirection. This this comes about because of um, the attempt to anticipate everything that could go wrong. Over the years, we have we have learned that software is not nearly as flexible as we thought, uh, that it's, it can be hard to change, especially if it gets tangled. And this fear of, of changing it has led us to over-engineer it, to anticipate things that might happen, to uh, anticipate new features and, and put the hooks in. Those hooks are extra levels of indirection. That's what a, a hook uh, always turns into. And if we add too many of them, we wind up with... Uh, a pile of indirections that are almost indecipherable. Well, it seems to me that that's the major tool of the of the modern developer is by decoupling to death, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, all of the different aspects of their code, which means that, you know, the, the thing you hear all the time is this code knows nothing about that code, this code knows nothing about that code, so when something goes wrong and needs to be fixed or a bug or something, there's a very small amount of code that needs to change, and then it has a rippling effect throughout. Um, so what you're saying, and I think I hear you saying, is you can take that too far. Oh, it's easy to take it too far. Uh, it, most code doesn't need to be so highly decoupled that you cannot find a thread through it. Um, and unfortunately, what happens is that lots of systems get far over-designed. Uh, good code is decoupled. It's just decoupled in the, in the ways that make sense right now. Uh, so, for example, if I have uh, uh, a module and there is an a obvious need for that module to do two different things, uh, I'm, I'm very likely going to create an indirection layer uh, between, the, between the things that happen in that module, probably an abstract class with two derivatives. Uh, and that will give me the indire indirection I need and the decoupling I need. I am not, however, going to then say, well, because this module uh, is doing two different things, uh, I must now protect it from another 25,000 over here and, and try and create the f great framework in the sky. A lot of a lot of projects descend into unmanageable morass because they have built the framework in the sky. And by the way, the framework in the sky usually winds up uh, in hell, being <laughs> being abandoned. Often abandoned. Although more often, uh, it's the boat anchor that drags the team down, and everyone has to use it, and no one knows why. And or the how. original architects are gone. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and remember, we added those extra layers of indirection to provide "quote unquote" hooks for yeah. additional extensions. But the <laughs> fact that nobody can understand those layers of indirection means nobody's actually going to do that. Yeah. Well, well, and the hooks have barbs on them. There's no way to pull them out. Now, you're not saying that software doesn't need to be decoupled, and I know you said that, but let's not, over, you know, underplay that statement. Good software does need to be decoupled. I guess what you, where you draw the line is uh, where you said for things that are happening now, don't try to predict the future. Refactor as needed for the requirements. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. Uh, you're right, certainly. Uh, good software needs to be decoupled. Uh, and the mere act of writing tests is a strong force of decoupling. Sure. If, you're a, if you're following test-driven development, you're going to be decoupling. Uh, on the other hand, I don't want, uh, I don't want an, an amount of decoupling that is unnecessary for the job at hand. Well, I mean, it, even, even with the necessary decoupling, these soft, this software can get unruly and unwieldy and, and big and complex. What's the answer to that? I mean, is it uh, more comments? I mean, you hear that all the time. You know? Where are the comments? <laughs> more comments. Yes, we need more comments. That'll solve the problem. Yeah, all we have to do is, is comment it. 
put big comment blocks on the on the front of every class and on the front of every function, and that'll solve the problem because the comments will fully explain the code, and everyone who reads the comments will completely understand exactly what's going on. Yeah, He's I, a little sarcastic, isn't he? I hear that tongue being firmly planted in cheek there. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, my my view of comments is that they're uh, a poor man's crutch. Um, obviously, there are times when you must write a comment, but I want those times to be few and far between. And if I if I find myself writing a comment because I've got no other option, uh, I kick myself. Uh, it's a failure of my uh, ability to express myself well in code. All right, so software is complex, and complex software is even more complex. So how do you deal sure. with that? Well, you you simplify it, and you, you you live with the fact that it's complicated, and you simplify it to the extent that you can. And there's more to this, right? A good piece of code explains itself well. Uh, it, it's, it is wise to invest effort into a module to get that module to be well ordered. Uh, to eliminate temporal decouplings, if you can, or, or temporal couplings, uh, to make sure that the function names are expressive, the variable names are expressive, so that as someone's reading it, they can pull the the mind map out of the author's head through the code and understand what's going on. Well, sometimes, uh, though, those functions can be very descriptive and still completely cryptic because there's no big picture. They can be very detailed, like, you know test to see that, you know, uh, function X returns true when past, uh, you know, an object of foo. You know, this is kind of, you see those things all the time in, in, uh, in agile development and test-driven development. I mean, that doesn't tell you anything about where you are in the big picture. Is a, is a sort of a, a DSL or a diagram or a designer help in those situations where you tend to lose the big picture? I once read um, Literate Programming by Knuth, uh, which is a wonderful book. And in there he goes through a... Uh, he's very excited because he's come up with this idea of literate programming. And, and the idea of literate programming was that uh, you could write your code along with text in the order that made sense for the text, not in the order that made sense from the code. So you'd see these little snippets of code in amongst the text that described it. And then he had a program called the, the Web and the Weave that would uh, grab the little snippets of code out of this text and then weave it into the correct order and then build the program and compile it. He was very excited about this because it, it created a readable program, a program that was readable, uh, because of the ordering and the partitioning. And what I found is, is that as I read his description, it was a, a prime number generator, as it turned out. As I read his description, um, it was extremely well written. I couldn't understand the algorithm. I had to go back into the code and, and look in the code and see exactly what his English words meant by staring at the code to get the final bit of insight. The, the problem with complex systems is that they're complex systems. There is, there is an effort that is required to understand the, the system and the big picture, and there's just no way around that. You can document it if you want. That may help a little, but you're still going to have to stare at the loops and the if statements and the, the decisions made in that code if you're really going to understand it. And that just takes effort. The more you can ease that effort by making the code readable and, and elegant and, and use good names and nice small structure, the easier it's going to be for everybody else to go through that effort to understand the system. Yeah, and it's just no avoiding the fact that this thing is going to be complicated. But And it's interesting, so much of the book really focused on these these simple things of stuff that is pronounceable, stuff that's unique enough to be searchable, uh, you know, and stuff where you don't have to be in my head to have a clue what I'm talking about. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who bring you this special message. What's more important for your web applications? High performance on the server or on the client? How about footprint, number of server requests? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your application performance, and of course, there is no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. 
When building their UI components, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution for different products, different scenarios, and even different browsers. The techniques vary dramatically. As a result, you, the developer, receive out-of-the-box, highly reliable components that are optimized in every aspect of their behavior. I'm sure you'll be interested to learn more about the various performance-boosting techniques for web applications. Just go to Telerik.com slash top performance for details and live demos. It's always a challenge. And, you know, when I – we had – Richard, who was what was the show we had on where – uh, somebody had a mathematical for formula for determining the complexity of, of software. Well, that sounds like <laughs> Ted Neuer to me. No, no, I can't remember. I'll, I'll find it. But um, basically, the more variables that you introduce in any class, the more permutations of yeah. combinations of those variables and objects. And therefore, Roger Sessions. Yeah, Roger Sessions. That's it. And therefore, the the more possibilities of state and the more complex. And so the solution then was to reduce the number of variables. And so, you know, I, uh, I'm often, you know, it sounds good uh, on the drawing board, but the reality is that, well, you need those variables. I mean, is this just a dilemma with which we are going to forever be cursed with? Or are there real practical solutions to uh, you know things, things, things that you can do, like a list of things we can do to help avoid this kind of. Well, I think the end answer to that is yes. It's something we're always going to be cursed with, or blessed with, if you if you think of it the other way. This it means that you need highly skilled, very intelligent people to do this job, and there aren't a lot of those people. Uh, so, software developers are always going to be in demand. Um, but let's look at the curse side of it again. Yeah, uh, this is something we are always going to be cursed with because systems are full of detail. And it is the management of that detail that programmers do. There have been efforts hither and yon, over and over again, to, to try and make programming simple, to bring it to the masses. And, and there's a, a logical flaw with that effort. And the logical flaw is that systems are detailed and someone's got to manage the details. And the person who manages the details called a programmer. So you've got you know the the um, uh, model driven architecture folks who who believe that you're going to be able to draw pictures and execute the pictures. Fine, draw the pictures, execute the pictures, but the pictures are going to be detailed, and there's going to be complexity in those details, and you're going to need programmers to draw the pictures. You're not going to get uh, people who are not disciplined in the management of detail to yeah. draw those pictures. It's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? But yeah, but by that point, that means the yeah the programmer's job may change and look different, but it's always that same uh, a clear picture of the the goal and and all of the details required to get to that goal. And whether you're typing into a, a green screen in C or you're you're drawing pictures and, and moving boxes around on a GUI, it's the same job. And it all comes down to, you know, having to know what you need to do when things go wrong. And there's the difference between the programmer who's going to draw pictures and the one who actually knows how to manage uh, serious numbers of details. Yeah, you said something interesting. You said, you know, the, the programmer's job may change. But it's, it's interesting if you look back in history, uh, which is very short for programmers, uh, go back, uh, you know, 50 years, 40 years, uh, programmers were writing if statements, writing while loops, writing functions. Uh, go back uh, to 1970, they were writing classes. Uh, our job has not changed that much. Oh, we've got much better tools. Uh, we can compile in seconds instead of days. We can uh, manage you know, millions of lines of code instead of tens of thousands of lines of code. But damn it, they're still lines of code. <laughs> That's yeah. just never gone away. They have not gone away. And I wonder if they ever will. Well, and, it, and really, if you get away from the language per se, these fundamental constructs of making a decision and repeating behaviors, this is the work. Yeah. How are you going to stop doing that? <laughs> that I is the get work. I this statements and while loops. I <laughs> don't <Yeah>. know. <laughs> so how... 
big a deal of this uh, is, is agile in all of this? I know obviously you're an advocate, but what's the distinction? In 1970, when you jumped on the programming bandwagon and became a professional, the, the term, I don't think that agile existed in the way that we describe it today. What was your turning point where you said, this is the thing? Well, my history there is as interesting as the industry's is, because I, I went through the late 60s, early 70s, uh, and suffered through the the uh, era of no process. Uh, and, of course, that era was, was uh, decorated with project failures and late deadlines, missed deadlines and blown budgets and, and uh, you know, managers who were either being fired or horrifically angry and tremendous pressure. And so to solve that problem, we software developers invented process. And we, we pushed that process upon ourselves. We like to think, of course, that it was management that did that, but it wasn't. It was us. We, we did this to ourselves, and we took the waterfall model and said, my God, that's beautiful, and we enforced it uh, for, the, for the next 30 years. Uh, I once sat in on a meeting where the software developers had drawn up a, um, a process model, very waterfallish. The year was probably 1985. Uh, they presented it to the management of the company. Management of the company said, well, this seems very interesting. And then the programmers said, okay, now will you please make us do this? It was the programmers who were enforcing this or trying to enforce this on, on themselves. In the 90s, the folly of this began to become clear. Uh, I was a consultant at the time. My clients were writing massive C++ applications. Uh, and they were trying to draw all the UML diagrams first. And they were trying to get all the message sequence diagrams done first. And they were trying to specify absolutely everything before they could write a line of code. And this seemed fundamentally stupid. How could you possibly know what code you're going to write without writing the code? And as I was struggling with that dilemma, uh, I stumbled across what Kent Beck had been writing uh, in his extreme programming blogs. And uh, there weren't blogs at the time; they were wikis or something along those lines. But uh, I started reading those things and thought, you know, this is exactly what the industry needs. So I got I got involved very early on and was a big proponent of the idea that uh, you'd write software in tiny little cycles. A week long, two weeks long. You make sure it executes at the end of every cycle. You gather your requirements uh, at, the, at the beginning of each cycle, and you, you work on this extremely quick rhythm, this highly frequent rhythm. Uh, and you focus on generating the code, writing code as opposed to other kinds of documents. Uh, and I found that to be very satisfying. It was uh, a discipline that was measurable. Uh, you could make progress and measure the amount of progress you made every week or two. Uh, you could use it to predict how the uh, project would turn out over the longer period. It gave you uh, metrics that you could use to uh, measure how well a software team was doing. But there was something in this in this mix that uh, confused me, and that was this thing called test-first design that Kent Beck was doing. And frankly, I thought it was loony. Um, you know, what, what, what is this business about writing unit tests first? Uh, at, at the time I, I studied this, it was probably 1999, and I was trying to understand this extreme programming stuff and this test-first design stuff, and I just thought it was nuts. You know, why, why would anybody write their unit tests first? I went on a a trip, and I visited Kent, uh, went to his home in Medford, Oregon, and the two of us sat down and started writing code together, which is the only true way that programmers communicate. And I saw him do this. I saw him writing little tiny tests and then, and then making them pass with a little bit of code and then writing a little bit more tests and making it pass with a little more code. And I was, uh, I was shocked. I'd never seen anything like that. Now, I'd been a programmer for almost 30 years at the time, I didn't expect anybody would show me something as fundamentally different as this, but it was really different. So I started doing it, and uh, I was very, very quickly converted. Uh, it is the only way I do software now. Uh, I write my tests in tiny little increments first. I make sure they always pass, and I make sure that every, every line of code uh, in the production system is covered by unit tests and acceptance tests, for that matter. Uh, so, and that's kind of a history of how I got there. 
we wind up with code that is tested, but not just tested. You can push a button and see a green bar crawl across the screen, and I like to keep my tests running so that in less than a minute, you know, I, the, all the tests are done. And if all the tests pass, you know that code works. And that gives you an immense amount of freedom to change the code. Because you can reach in and fiddle with it and then push the button again. A minute later, oh, it still works. And, and it's going to point you right to where button, you broke it. it. You know if you've broken it. And you lose the fear of breaking it. Which means that you lose the fear of cleaning it. Nobody writes clean code the first time. Nobody can. You, you can't even see the mess until after you're done and you've got it working, and then you look at it and go, holy crap, that's a mess. It's the tests that allow you to clean it. So I look at test-driven development as a necessary precursor to writing clean code. You simply have to have those tests if you are then going to be able to take the effort and clean the code. It's an interesting point. I mean, you could clean it when you were working on it at the time when the whole thing's still in your head. But the next morning when it isn't, you're terrified of it. It works, leave it alone. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm not even convinced that uh, you've got the 24 hours you just gave yourself. <laughs> okay, maybe my memory's long. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I, you know, I, I look at modules that I've written in the last hour and think, wait a minute. Can I really swap those two lines of code? Is there a temporal coupling between them? What order do the variables get fit in? That's especially true, of course, if there's any concurrency going on. God help you. Well, and I, that's why I, you, you hit on a great point, which is this is only getting worse as we're moving into this model where multiple simultaneous executions of our chunks of code are happening routinely. Yes. And there's a whole other level of coupling we've got to think about. What's going to happen when two threads are entering this chunk of code at the same time? Or one immediately following the other? So I am intrigued by the, um, the current effort that's going on in uh, Haskell and Scala and Erlang because of the functional nature of these languages. Uh, and just for the benefit of the listeners, functional languages are languages in which you don't have settable variables. You can initialize them, but you can't then change their state after that. So that's a very interesting paradigm to work in. And I was, um, again, reading this, this wonderful book, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, which was written a you know, million years ago by a bunch of guys who were doing Lisp. And I just got recently to the chapter on concurrency. And in there they make this wonderful point. Right? The, the problem with computer programs is state. If you... If you have states that can change, then computer programs get much more complicated than they otherwise would be. And then, if you add concurrency onto that, you get the possibility of, of changing states in indeterminate orders, and you wind up with even more complexity. And the solution to that, where feasible, is to get rid of the state entirely. So I think it's intriguing that we are... We are exploring these functional languages right at this juncture where multiple processes are becoming more and more prevalent and concurrent processes are becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, it may be that, that functional languages are a, an amelioration, an attenuation of the complexity. Don't you think, though, that functional languages tend to lend themselves better to some solutions than others? I mean, can you see line of business applications written with a functional programming language? Sure. Sure. I, I can see uh, uh, any kind of application being written with functional languages because... So a functional language uses a general purpose programming language? Yeah, I, I think it is just, just as general purpose as any other. Can you back that statement up with any kind of examples of, of, of why or how? No, I can't. Um, other than theoretically, you know, it's Turing complete, so it must work. But I can back it up with history, because the argument, that, that very argument has been made for virtually every language that has come out and become new. Uh, 
and Fortran programmers uh, made it about COBOL programs, and COBOL programmers made it about uh, C, and C made it, Pascal made it about C, and C made it about C++. The, the, uh, everybody fears that the next language coming is not going to be as applicable. Or the other argument is that it's going to be a toy language. It's not going to be a real language. That, that argument has been made against the Ruby and Python communities. But it is so radically different, though. And don't you, don't you think a lot of these line-of-business applications actually have to have state? Oh, yes, of course, they must have state. Uh, any, any reasonably complex system has to have state. Uh, it depends on where you put that state and how you partition it. And if you can, if you can get most of the processing into a functional form, so that the state is in initializations and the state changes in, is in initializations rather than in assignments, um, then you are pretty free from concurrent update problems or even the temporal couplings that plague um, non-concurrent code. You just can't have them. Now, is there going to be state? Of course there's going to be state. You just have to be careful where you put it and how you design it. One of the problems we have right now is that software developers don't make the distinction about uh, stateless and stateful programs. They just scatter variables all over the place and set them whenever they want to. And, and that that's leads fine. to these temporal couplings and concurrency problems that are hideous. Functional languages make that much more difficult. You can have state, but it's not, it's not a part of the language that is easy. It's something you have to do something special to do. So, and it's an interesting angle to think about this problem. It's just that I need you to be more careful with your state data. Yes. Than you've been up till now. Yes. Yes. What does that mean, though? I mean, come on, give me some examples of of how you do that. How do you do that? Um, well, a real simple example: two functions, and one function sets a variable, and the other. The other function uses that variable. Let's say that we're inside a class, and the variable we're talking about is an instance variable. So function A sets that instance variable to some value, and function B uses it. Clearly, A has to be called before B. And it's a temporal coupling between these two functions. But there's nothing about the structure of the language or about the structure of the program that forces the programmer to write the call to A before he writes the call to B. And in fact, if he swaps the two, the program breaks for mysterious and unknown reasons until he gets his debugger out and figures it out. Now, if you change that slightly, you have function A return the value that was changed instead of setting it into a variable in the class, and function B take that value, suddenly you have created a, a constraint. There is no way to call B before you call A, because the output of A has to go into the input of B, so the temporal coupling has been eliminated, and that is essentially a functional language. The variable itself has been destroyed. It's gotten passed along through argument calls and return values. That's a very simple example. Okay. But it, it is key. You know, the funny thing is, Old school web development was like this. We had to manage state very carefully. We had no choice because we really had no memory from one page request to the other. You right. had to go get your state. You had to go put it back. You had to work with it for the short time that you had it, and then you had to let it go. I saw an entire um, uh, Zork, you know, the, the game of Zork dungeon, uh, well. the old adventure game. Uh, I saw an entire one of those done on the web where the state of the game was saved in the URL. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and that was very functional functional implementation because there was no place to store the data except in the URLs itself. So your all your inventory, your current location, all of that in the URL. Yes, everything was in the URL. <laughs> of course that mean, meant you could cheat a lot. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Where would you like to go in the map today? Yeah. Yeah, unless you encrypted it somehow. Oh no, I'm just being difficult. Separate issue, but and an interesting point, that, that really this jump is not that massive. It's about, I want you to treat your state data delicately, because yeah. everything else is going to go away at the end of this function. I just, I'm still waiting for the example of, you know, a, a, data, a simple data entry screen with a web service that, uh, 
that does uh, any kind of validation, maybe sort of a real-time thing. Maybe perhaps it's on the web. I mean, you know, there you've got you've got objects that hold uh, information about um, you, you know the, about the data that's being entered. You've got uh, validation rules that get kicked off, maybe on the server side, on the client side, and um, to I, I just can't conceive, and maybe I'm just being thick, but I just can't, and I haven't done enough F-sharp or whatever it is, but I can't uh, conceive of how that could be done in, in any kind of way that makes the program readable and maintainable. Well, I think that will be the, uh, That's the, the experiment trick. of the next several years. Yeah, I'm sure, and I'd love to Certainly the industry that. is pushing in that direction. And uh, you know, listeners out there, if you if you have seen such a beast, by all means, point us to it. I'd like to see that. So, clean code doesn't just mean uh, uncomplex code. I mean, we we've established the fact that code is complex by nature. Clean code means getting rid of extraneous references, extraneous code. Um, Shortening? Does it mean readability? Does it mean less code? What is what does clean mean? Okay, so yes, it means all of those things. Obviously, we want as uh, uh, few references as possible. We want to decouple as much as we can. Uh, we want our uh, variables to have good names, our functions to have good names, and and by good names, I mean they should explain what they do. They should be readable in some kind of human way. Uh, you should be able to say if is empty instead of if uh, size equals zero, for example. It's nice names that lend themselves well. At the next level up, we would like functions that have a minimum number of arguments. We don't want lots of arguments because arguments are complicated. Functions that have a minimum number of arguments uh, and that if they return values, they return sensible values, not, not large, massive, nasty things, but simple, easy values to return. We would like our functions to be small. And by small, I mean you know, four or five lines of code, ten lines of code. I don't want a hundred-line function. I don't want a uh, 200-line function. Uh, I think the longest function I ever saw was 10,000 lines of code, but I don't Yikes. want that. <laughs> I don't want the left-hand side of the program to look like a cross-cut saw. <laughs> with lots and lots of indentations. Uh, functions should be very, very small. If functions are small, it means we have a lot of them, lots and lots of little functions that are well-named, each one of them well-named, each one of them taking a minimum number of arguments, each one of them uh, doing one thing extremely well. The system may be complicated. The components don't have to be. We get into trouble when the components of the system are so irregularly shaped and so bizarre in the way they're constructed that we can't even tell how the gears turn. But if the functions are simple, if the classes are small, if there are a lot of them, then each one of them can be tackled individually. And then we can build up the complexity of the system from a set of simple components. You know, there's an interesting balance here between the architectural discussion and the, the content discussion. Every great app I've ever seen, the content was really deep and sophisticated, but the architecture supported that fairly simply. Uh, absolutely. It just it, it, You know, when, we, when we're feeling around for how are we going to do this, that this is a big, complicated app that does a lot of things. It's that insight. Like I think I'm trying to discern the difference between, uh, you know, architects. What's a great architect? It's the guy who's able to see the pattern in all of these requirements and come up with the simplest architecture to support them all. Yes, you can see your way past all of the statements, all of the while loops, all of the options and fiddly bits. Uh, you can move out of uh, the Slardabart fasts, you know, fjords and see the fact that, wait a minute, this really is a circle after all. Uh, there is something elegant and simple at its core, and if we can adopt that core simplicity, then all the complexity suddenly aligns itself well around it. still complicated, but it has a place to go. Now, 
is we're all we're assuming that um, clean code. Uh, the code is clean so that it can be found using simple text editing and just the, the tools of the day. It, if the tools become better at managing complex systems and finding your way around and navigating your way around a complex system, would that allow us to have more complex code because it's more manageable now that we have a better tool? Has that happened throughout history or does it all come down to the text the text editor? Well, that's an interesting question. We're, we are still, of course, uh, living in the age of the text editor as far as programming is concerned. But that text editor has gotten really, really powerful. Yeah, and I mean, you could say um, the, comp- the, the complexity of the .NET framework is enormous, all the namespaces and things, but IntelliSense has made it possible to navigate that. Um, doesn't mean that we shouldn't have, uh, you know, the .NET framework. And, and it, uh, certainly, and, and IntelliSense makes it possible to navigate your way through that framework. Um, and by the way, the, the tools have gotten to the point where they are are uh, immensely powerful. IntelliSense is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, some of these refactoring tools are are unbelievable in their ability to manipulate code. Yeah. Uh, nowadays. You know, when I when I'm writing a program, when I'm uh, manipulating a program, I don't think about character edits. I think about I need to rename that variable, and that's a keystroke. Rename variable, bam. I I think about oh, here's three lines. They should be extracted as a function, and that's a keystroke. Extract function, and my editor knows how to extract a function, and it can find all the variables that are used and turn them into function arguments, and and make the function appear out of these three or four lines of code that I've selected. I can tell my editor, uh, these three functions belong in a different class, and the editor will move those functions into the other class and make sure that all of the variable references are tied up correctly. The, the power in that is, is enormous. It changes the whole level at which you operate on a program. A programmer is no longer a character editor. He's become uh, an editor of concepts one level up from that. Now we, we have operations on functions and operations on classes that we can access with a keystroke. So the, the act of programming starts to look more like sculpting. And we reach into the program and we do some operation upon it, uh, split one class, uh, down the middle, or we, we take three functions and we promote them up to a superclass, or we take another three functions and we push them down into subclasses, and those can be single actions. So a programmer becomes this choreographer of a dance of code as it's flinging around the system, becoming uh, better organized and better structured. So to take, wind this back to the original point, the tools do allow, these new modern tools do allow much more complex problems to be dealt with because the tools allow the programmers to keep the code as clean as possible and as simple as possible. Of course, at the bottom of all this, you still need tests. Without tests, you're still hosed. If you don't have a complete test suite, you can't do any of this stuff. Because you can't be confident that that what you're doing doesn't break things. Yeah, exactly, because... It's pretty easy to break things. But if you've got that test suite, and if the test suite can run fast, then you can make these very large changes to your source code uh, and push the button, see the test still pass, and then go on to the next one. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, Embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Uh, I want to dive in a little more into Agile. I, of course, I'm smitten with your uh, fifth element of the Agile manifesto being craftsmanship over crap. Yes, yeah, craftsmanship over crap. <laughs> that's, that's a website now, by the way, craftsmanshipovercrap.com. <laughs> Dot com. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and 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 for me, I I feel like we're still basically struggling in the computer industry for this core concept of professionalism and, and does it really come down to, you know, I see there's two arguments that, that there is the, I think very much an agile argument of this is a craft and it takes craftsmen to do it. And, and then there's a, there is another argument that says there's a, a range of skills. Everybody's useful. You just have to work in the can that you're working in and, uh, um, you know, we'll make it all work together. I don't know that those things are mutually exclusive either, but you know, not everyone subscribes to the, the Agile Manifesto, and they're still trying to build software. Sure. So, two concerns that I have. Uh, the first one is the one that actually got dropped in my lap again, which was a, uh, a CEO looked at me and says, my biggest frustration in my life with my development team is I still don't know how long it will take for the program to be delivered. Yeah, that that is the problem, isn't it? They still, after all this time and all this stuff, and you can agile this and waterfall that. When will the program be done? It isn't just that. Just so frustrating. But let let me turn that on its ear. It is so frustrating to go to your doctor when you have a disease and have the doctor say, I'm not sure if I can cure you or not. Or worse, I can't cure you. Are we not going to pay the doctor? Or how about a lawyer? Let's go to a lawyer because someone is suing us. It's extremely frustrating to go to that lawyer and have the lawyer say, I'm not sure we can win this case, but you're still going to pay me for trying my damnedest to see if I can get you out of this fix. There's very little difference between the act of trying to write software and these other issues, right? We are in a a point here. Is the act of creating software, building a bridge or litigating a case? Well, it's certainly not building a bridge and it's not quite litigating a case, although I'd say it's a lot closer to litigating a case with the judge is the computer and the, and the, uh, the jury is the, uh, the customers, it's awfully difficult to make the argument in code that gets your program to work correctly. Uh, it is a complex, very nasty, very dynamic situation. Uh, the reason doctors can't, can't make the promise is because they're dealing with a complex system that they don't fully understand. And the, the same is true of lawyers. They don't fully understand the system. Lawyers don't understand anything, do they? Could be, sorry? <laughs> lawyers don't understand anything, do they? Well, they, they do understand how to make money, but let's not go down that route. <laughs> they may understand awesome. the system a little too well. I hate lawyers. Yeah, <laughs> until you need one. That's right. Then yeah. I yeah. love them. Then you love them, yeah. We could make, say the same about doctors, and we could say the same about programs. I hate all lawyers except mine, basically, is what it comes down to. Now, I'm, I'm not entirely bought into the idea that it's still not like building a bridge because bridges run over budget, too, and take longer than expected, too, because there's things they didn't know. Sure. Things they didn't discover until they were well into the process of constructing it. Sure. Absolutely. But bridges, when you're done, still look like a bridge. Yeah, they do. And programs are never done. Only abandoned. They're yes. abandoned. But they're never done. They're always changing, always fiddling, always... And, you know, they wind up in shapes and forms that they were initially never intended for. You know, think of the Internet. The Internet is this wonderful creation. Here we are. And the entire world is tied together over this thing that was, what, eight computers? Something like that, yeah. Right? Mm, These guys weren't thinking global spanning networks of billions of bytes per second and millions of users we have changed the rules and changed them again and changed them again and changed them again but i'd argue if they had considered that they never would have shipped (laughs) you're right they never would have (laughs) and that's the difference between a program and a bridge because you can't build a smaller bridge across the uh across the gorge you've got to build the one you need well, it's also, I think, generally people don't look at a bridge and go, you know, we could land airplanes on that. <laughs> let's uh, Maybe they should. Yeah. Let's shift to teams, basically. And I know you're a proponent of Agile and uh, pair programming. Is that in your picture as well? Absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an old farmer's almanac saying on hiring help on or around the farm, a boy is a boy, two boys is half a boy, 
and three boys is no boy at all. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, I guess the moral of the story is don't hire boys to write software. <laughs> uh, well, I, uh, for reasons that have nothing to do with what you just said, I'd say, yeah. Um, clearly, we do want to have uh, teams, and the teams have to work well together, and and they have to collaborate and and uh, interface with each other so that you can get stuff done. Yeah. Paraprogramming is, is uh, I think, something that is tragically overlooked by the industry. It's gotten a, a bad rap in some cases. Uh, those people that do do it find it to, to be very useful. Uh, it's unfortunately gotten uh, the... the um, Taste of religion associated with it, you know, because the initial proponents like me were so enthusiastic early on. We've come to the realization here, the conclusion anyway, on this show that that uh, it is it can be a very very powerful thing. I think you just have to have the right attitude or the right kind of people working in that environment. Obviously, if you get a couple of highly antisocial, unmotivated programmers together in one room, you're going to get highly antisocial, unmotivated software out of them. No, I think that's two. true. In fact, I'm not sure you'll get any software out Yeah. But back to the CEO hat, the guy says, I'm going to put two guys on one machine, and am I going to get double the results? Well, yeah. And, and so... Oh, I mean, I've seen it work. Uh, you know, we can we can go to the data, and the data says, yeah, pretty close. Yeah, it, um, I've seen it work really, really well. Does anybody believe the data? You know, the, the experiments have been done. Yeah, we're not well known as great data collectors about our productivity. You know, you sort of mentioned in the early stages of, of this conversation around uh, Agile and how over time we learn to estimate our the project better and better. But yeah. uh, m- most folks I talk to feel like they never do the same project twice, so any estimations they would make are invariably going to be wrong. I'm able to estimate the project I just finished really well. Mm. Well, let's think about <laughs> what aspects of you know programmers' personality lend themselves well to pair programming. Obviously, you have to have somebody who can communicate. You have to have somebody who has good ideas, and also somebody who isn't uh, who is susceptible to churn that needs that person to bounce things off of. I mean, I think if you find those types of programmers together with with different sets of experience and different sets of knowledge they can bring together, that they will amplify each other, which is what you really want. Uh, yeah, it certainly is. Um, there's more to it than that, though. Uh, one of the big problems we have with programming teams is that they... They tend to silo themselves. So uh, my code is my code, your code is your code. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see yours. I don't want you to see mine. Uh, sometimes this gets so ingrained in the in the culture that it becomes corporate law. Right? That you know Bob's code is Bob's code, and he has his own passwords, and only he can touch it. Uh, and this is really unfortunate because it means that it's very difficult for teams to share information, even amongst their own members. Uh, so one of the reasons I like pair programming is that e- even though I may be responsible for a module, lots of other people have seen the insides of it. They all know how to make it. They all know where the code is stored in the source code control system. They understand, at least at a, at a high level, what the idea behind the module is. Uh, and if I get hit by a truck, somebody can take it over. Yeah. Yeah, having... so that sort of inherent thing. The, one of the challenges that I run into around the agile movement, the craftsman attitude in general, is that we don't seem to have good apprenticeship programs. And I've never felt that pair program was really good about growing junior developers, that it really took peers together to be productive. How do we grow new talent? Well, that's a really, really important question. And you, you hit on the word that I like the best, which is an apprenticeship. Uh, it seems to me that the way you learn this, this trade or this craft is by working with people who know it really well and uh, you know, being supervised by masters of the trade. Uh, I think you can raise new people uh, through those kinds of ranks pretty quickly. So I think an apprenticeship, apprenticeship journeyman model is far better than the one we currently have. Uh, I am appalled by the the, the skill level of, of graduates. Uh, it's possible 
to go through an entire computer science degree and never write a line of code. It's amazing. Certainly not ever make anything that runs. Well, yeah. Uh, I once had uh, an, appre- an apprentice, interestingly enough. We, we brought this person on as an apprentice uh, and found that this person had uh, is in, enrolled in a master's program in computer science, had never written a line of code. I don't know. I don't understand how that works. I don't either. So there is something wrong, at least with some of the academia uh, in computer science. Not all of it, but some of it isn't working right, because the folks coming out really start almost at zero once they get into industry. And, and the problem there is, is that industry doesn't recognize that particularly well. So we saw this, of course, during the dot-com bubble um, when anybody with a J in their name was hired and wrote Java code. Uh, and we wound up with hideous, hideous piles of code that we're still trying to dig our way out from under now. Hideous piles of code. <laughs> that brings back <laughs> memories, actually. Yeah. Well, Aaron lies the problems with an apprenticing. And if you just think about a carpenter's apprentice, like he starts out carrying tools. You know, none of his actual wood ends up in the building. It, it's after the, it's way you know that gradual transition of when does your code live in that product as well and and you know can you actually mature them and what what are the measurements? How do we know when a guy's made it from apprentice to to journeyman? The way um, I, I have run a number of apprentices through Object Mentor, and the the way we did it was to give the apprentices tasks that were. Important, but not mission critical, uh, so that if something went wrong, it really didn't matter that much. So the very first few programs that they would write, in fact, the very first few programs they write would be throwaways. You know, I want you to write this thing, and we're actually never going to use it, but I want you to make it work. Uh, and, of course, we'd pair program with them and, and instruct them and so on. And then within a month or so, they were working on simple things on our website that if they didn't turn out real well, we could start over or throw away. Um, and then bit by bit, they would move into more and more mission-critical areas. And our experience with the apprentices was that they, they learned very quickly. Um, there were some disasters that had to be thrown away, but that's okay. We knew that was going to happen. Uh, there were some complete rewrites. That's okay. And after about three years, uh, we had some really, really talented programmers. How many How many cycles of the master's time was focused on supporting the apprentice rather than writing their own code? Oh, gosh. Um, Actually, the leverage was very low. Um, The amount of time we would spend with them would be um, 10%. That is really low. Yeah, yeah, because we could get them going on something and then critique what they did. Uh, Sometimes we'd pair with them, but they would also pair with each other. So you would let them pair with each other, but then you... And it's an interesting dynamic here to pair program, which is how often do you switch up? Uh, well, I, the number I like is once a day. So if you're going to be pairing, you should probably not pair any longer than two or three hours with the same person. There has, however, been a study, and the this, this study is remarkable. I, I can't remember the name of the paper, but it's in one of the um, Agile conference pr- proceedings. Um, these guys did a, a quasi-scientific experiment shortening the pairing time uh, from week to week to week and measuring the performance of the team. And they, they found that 30 minutes was the optimum time. 30 minutes. Wow. It's yeah. like a function. Yeah. I, I thought that's very interesting. Very interesting. Uncle Bob, it's about that time. We've got to uh, wrap it up. Is there anything that uh, you want to say before we go? Any call-outs or shout-outs or resources you can point us to? Well, resources. Obviously, the, the, I wrote the book, Clean Code, so there's a, a resource there. And the, the Object Mentor website is loaded with uh, uh, articles and papers that go back years about object-oriented design and clean code and agile development and so on. Uh, I recently put up this craftsmanshipovercrap.com website as as a way to um, get people to get these green bands and put them on their hands. And there's also a little charity that I like there that they can contribute to. Ah, very good. Yep. Any any new books in the works? Uh, you know, I have no idea what I'm going to write next. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of 
writing a lot of code right now. Excellent. As well you yeah. should be. Excellent. Mm. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 